Early one Sunday morning, the pastor of a local church was rehearsing his sermon. Did you know pastors did that? And uh, he was rehearsing a sermon. And in an attempt to, to really see if he could be dramatic, uh, he, he, as he was preaching, uh, he, he got on his knees. And, and I'm not going to do that, but he got on his knees. And, and, and he shouted and started pounding his chest, I am nothing, I am nothing. Just kind of real humble kind of preaching kind of thing. And, and he was just was pounding his chest, I am nothing, I am nothing. And the associate pastor was in the building and saw it happen, and he got overwhelmed with emotion, and he, he did the same thing. He got on his knees, and he started shouting, I am nothing, I am nothing, and beating his chest. Well, at that point, the janitor entered the sanctuary, and just overcome with emotion of seeing these two men of God beat their chest and claim how humble they were and how they were nothing, uh, the janitor started beating his chest, and he cried, I am nothing, I am nothing. And the janitor left the sanctuary, and the pastor looked at the associate pastor with a strange look on his face, and the pastor said, who does he think he is to think he's nothing? <laughs> when we don't have the proper self-awareness uh, to see how our sin is just as bad as others' sin, we become self righteous. We're talking today about the danger of self-righteousness as we start this sermon series called Sacrifice. We're going to be talking about things that uh, as we enter this Easter season that we can sacrifice or that we need to, to give up as we approach Easter. And self-righteousness is one of those things that maybe you haven't thought that you need God to work on your heart about. But today we're going to talk about sacrificing our self-righteous. We're in chapter 13 of Luke, starting in verse 1. Luke writes that there was some present at that very time who told him, that being Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 4. Are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and, and killed them, do you think that they are, were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Father in heaven, as we look at this passage today, come across a unique passage you've given us in the book of Luke that cuts to the center of our sin. Sin, Lord, not just breaking your law, but, but looking to other things our pride, 
our selfishness, other things that we look to you to be our Savior when we should simply trust in you. Help us trust in you today, Father. Lord, make my words your words today. Fill me with your spirit so that we can hear from you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want to show you three ways that self-righteousness blinds us. Three ways self-righteousness blinds us. It doesn't blind us with allergies to kind of have what I have going on right now. But kind of working on my vision here with the allergies. But it does blind us. Verse 1 tells us this, that self-right, or number 1 says that self-righteousness blinds us to reality. Self-righteousness blinds us to reality. Verse 1 says that there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Okay, what is this saying here? Well, as Jesus was teaching... Some people came up, and they told Jesus about this, this tragedy. They, they told us about how they had these Galilean Jews who were worshiping, that the, the, the government came in and slaughtered them while they were worshiping, right in their house of worship. Now, Galilee was a birthplace of extremism, of religious extremism in that time. And many zealots, many revolutionaries that wanted to overthrow the Roman government, which uh, Jesus had several disciples who he kind of got out of that uh, extremism. Uh, they, want, they, they came from Galilee. That's where they were from. And Galilee was kind of, kind of out in the country. Right? It was just the, an area outside of the city. It was away from the, a lot of the major metropolitan areas. And many of the disciples were Galileans. In fact, that's how they knew that they were disciples many times, because of their accent. So Rome already didn't like these men. They were already on their radar. And these worshipers who were slaughtered were actually Samaritans and who many Jews viewed as breaking God's law for worshiping in a temple in the first place because it was an unauthorized location. And so the intention of these Jews bringing this news to Jesus was to show that perhaps God was judging these revolutionaries, perhaps God was judging these Samaritans because they were worshiping wrongly, so God used the government to go in and slaughter them and because they were not doing it correctly. In other words, that they, they kind of brought this on themselves. That was what they were saying. You know, Jesus, uh, you know, Pilate and them, they came in and, and they, they slaughtered those, those, those heretics. <laughs> there's, there's people who aren't worshiping right. They came in and killed them right when they were worshiping. What do you think about that? Jesus, verse 2. It was an interesting answer. He says, do you think that the Galileans are worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? In other words, because they were killed in their worship, do you think they were worse than your uncle down the street? Do you think they were worse than your friend that lives right next to you? Who, who have it right, who are worshiping correctly? Do you think they're worse in any way? He says in verse 3, no, they're not. And then he says something else. I tell you, unless you repent, you all will perish. What is he talking about? 
Jesus says they didn't deserve it. That's not why God allowed this to happen. Now, the interesting thing about this, God doesn't work like that is what Jesus is saying. But if he did, it would be fine because we all deserve deaths like that is what Jesus is saying. We've all broken God's law. We all deserve to be that way. But in God's grace, he allows us not to fall victim to circumstances like that. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, no, God didn't do that. Do you think he would have spared you because you're so good? See, we have a, a blind spot for our own sin. We see other sins, but we miss ours. And so we miss reality. Jesus spoke on this earlier in, in Luke chapter 6. He says this, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your eye? Or some translation says plank. How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, but you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. Famous passage here. Jesus is saying this, that, that self-righteous judgment is similar to when someone says, you've got something in your eye, yet they have something larger in their eye. Right? It'd be like me walking up to someone and saying, you have a receding hairline. <laughs> they would say, yeah, I know. So do you. No, I don't. What are you talking about, right? That's what it's like when we point out other people's sins as if we were innocent. Jesus, those Samaritans, they really got it, didn't they? They really got it. And Jesus says, no, they didn't. And it could have been you. It's like the pot calling the kettle black. James adds this in verse chapter 4. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The answer is you're no one. You're not eligible to do that. When we speak critically of others, we're making ourselves the judge of their lives, yet we're not the judge. God is the judge. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 2. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that judgment of God is right, rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice these such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul's saying this, that when someone sins in such a way, we don't say, can you believe that person sinned in that way? Because then when we say that, we're holding ourselves accountable to what we said. Hey, can you believe they did that? We're making ourselves accountable to our own judgment. That's what Paul's getting at. He's saying, you're just as guilty. The moment you pronounce a judgment, you're guilty of it yourself. Self-righteousness blinds us to the reality that we are also guilty of breaking God's law. 
We can point out the sins of others. Yet when we do, we are unconsciously holding ourselves accountable to our own standard. It's the definition of hypocrisy and and, and self-righteous attitudes. It's what makes us a hypocrite. Well, there was a story about China that was developing blinding laser weapons. Sounds like science fiction. Blinding laser weapons. They're designed to, to blind the soldiers on the battlefield. That's just kind of what they were. Now, they haven't been able to, to, to perfect it, so they're still working on it, all right? But the deal was that they could take these portable lasers out there. They're getting at war. And they can just blind the enemy, and then they won't have to kill them or shoot them because they're blinded temporarily. And they could, you know, kind of win. Really, they, could, they, they can't fight anymore. They can render them unable to do anything, right? And in one sense, in war, a soldier doesn't have to be destroyed to be rendered useless. All you got to do is blind them. Same way in our lives. Satan doesn't have to destroy us to render us useless. All he has to do is blind us from the truth. Blind us from reality. And they were less effective for the kingdom less effective in our own lives. So self-righteousness blinds us, blinds us to reality of what is really happening when we're focused on others and not ourselves. Secondly, self-righteousness blinds us to justice. Blinds us to justice or fairness, if you will. Verse 4, Jesus brings up this story. He says, what about those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others that lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will, always, you will likewise perish. Jesus brings up this, this natural disaster, if you will, this accident where these 18 Jewish workers were working on a tower and the thing fell on them. And people said, ah, Jesus, God's judging them. That's what happened, right? Because they were working for the government, the evil Roman Empire. They were building their property, and the tower fell. They they got what they deserved. Jesus says, nope, but you will if you don't repent. That's what he says. You will if you don't turn from your sins. The self-righteous Jews believed that these workers' deaths were were because God had judged them. And whenever there's a natural disaster or horrible event, some are quick to point to the judgment of God. Now, they do this because there's precedence in the Bible. We see where God has sent things, and we see in the Old Testament where God will, will use things like this for judgment. Okay, we see this. When 9-11 occurred, some Christians claimed that that God was trying to get our attention and by, by judging New York because of its greed, its immorality, God was judging New York. Heard of all that happening. When, when Hurricane Katrina wiped through New Orleans in 2005, some believers claimed it was the judgment of God because New Orleans was this sinful city with voodoo and all this kind of stuff going on. I've read stories of some Christians who claim that the pandemic is God's judgment for the world. For its sinful practices, its, its sinfulness. 
And let me say that nothing happens in this world without God's allowance. But if God judged us for every time we sinned, Lord, there'd be nothing left. Amen? Have you thought about that? Every time you've told a lie, every time you've done something wrong, spoken bad about someone, sinned in this way, do you realize how many times God has let you get away with it? How many times he's given you the grace that you've never paid the consequence for something you've said or done? The time you cut that person off in traffic and gave them an evil look, talked bad about them, God never judged you for that. Now, he could have, and he might have for some people, but he never did, most, most likely. The time you yelled at your child in anger and sin, God didn't put a tower on you. See the problem with that logic? When we say, well, God's judging this. Man, if he judges for every time we sinned, there'd be nothing left. Now, we deserve it. That's what he's saying. He's saying we deserve it, but he gives us so much grace, we lose track of it. We, we're blinded to true fairness. We're blinded to true justice because of this. He's basically saying, don't worry about these that fell, that this tower fell on. Don't worry about these people that were slaughtered. Jesus is saying, worry about your own self. We should listen to Jesus. Instead of worrying about if God is judging us through this or that, maybe this is an opportunity to look at our own hearts. That's what Jesus said, repent. Self-righteousness, though, takes the burden off of ourselves and it puts it on others. Self-righteousness distorts our idea of how, how God judges people. Jesus says, if you think this is true, repent, or else you will be the next. Jesus puts the burden of proof on ourselves. Don't let self-righteousness judge or blind you toward God's justice. And number three, which we've kind of already hinted at, number three, self-righteousness blinds us to grace. It blinds us to grace. How much grace God has really given us every day of our lives. Verse 6. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Which, by the way, if you plant something, you do it, not just look at the, at the plant, but to have fruit. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I come out, every spring, <laughs> I come out, and I look to see if there's fruit on this fig, this fig tree, and there is none, no figs. Cut it down, why should it use up the ground? And the answer said, sir, let it alone. Go ahead and wait one more year. I'll dig around it. I'll put on manure, dig all the roots out, really fertilize it. We'll see if it bears fruit. If it should bear fruit next year, good. If not, then you can cut it down. So the vineyard is a common throughout Scripture picture, especially in the Old Testament of Israel. And the fig tree in this, in this parable probably represents Israel as well. It represents us. 
God's the owner of the vineyard. The vine dresser represents Jesus, who for three years has been ministering to Israel. For three years, he's been preaching the gospel to these Israelites, telling them about the kingdom of God. Jesus, so to speak, is Israel's second chance. He's our second chance. The digging around and putting on manure is Jesus preaching about the kingdom of God. And he says, then after the weeds have been removed, if the tree still doesn't bear fruit, it's obviously dead, so cut it down. We got a tree out here in between Mission House and the other house. It's dead. The thing is, it's dead. We just, I feel like I go over there and just kind of push it down. It'd probably just fall right over. It's just sitting there in my way. It's not growing. Sometimes if I cut through there with my car, I want to run it over. Just cut that thing down. It serves no purpose. That's what he's saying. And he says that they wouldn't be rejected without cause. Because not only did they reject the Old Testament prophets, God now has given them Jesus. And whoever rejects Jesus, he's saying here, is spiritually dead. Now, this seems harsh for Jesus to say this, but the incarnation of Jesus actually underscores God's grace. He sent them prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. All those Bible books in the Old Testament we read through with these funny names and these, these judgments and these woes. So Israel will repent and follow the Lord. And he sent them prophet and prophet and prophet, and they're dead. And now he sends Jesus as a last chance. In our own lives, Jesus is our last chance. In our first chance, we sinned and broke the law of God. And in his grace and in his love, he sent us Jesus. He said, hold on, it's been three years, but just give it one more, one more round. And we'll see if it bears fruit. Look at Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short. Of the glory of God. God has every right to leave us there. Every right. But he's loving and graceful. So he doesn't. Look at 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's why he hasn't dug up the tree and thrown it down yet. Our job is to go out there and pull the weeds up and spread manure. Did you know that? You're the manure man. That's your job. Spread the fertilizer. Dig up the weeds. Plant the gospel. Because look at verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done it will be exposed. 
The fact that God has not come back yet is God's grace. Every lost person walking the face of the earth, the fact that God has not come back yet, they are living in God's grace knowing that they still have another day to hear the gospel and turn to Jesus. Every day he doesn't come back is another day of grace. But one day he comes back, it'll be too late. Self-righteousness blinds us towards grace we start thinking we don't need God or that we didn't need him or that God saved us because we were good enough and that's not the truth he saved us because we needed the Savior 1800s y'all remember those days a man named George Wilson was sentenced to be hung after he was convicted of killing a guard while robbing a federal payroll from a train this is back in the train days President Andrew Jackson faced tremendous pressure to give this man a pardon, even though he was guilty of the train robbery. Andrew Jackson gave him a pardon. Just, you're, it's like it never happened. Just go on. George Wilson refused to accept the pardon. Unbelievable. And, and the, the case became so legally confusing. The Supreme Court had a rule on it. Like, does he have a right to not to, to reject the pardon? No one had ever done that before. So what did the Supreme Court and Chief Justice John Marshall deliver the verdict? This is what he said. He said, a pardon is a parchment, piece of paper, whose only value must be determined by the receiver of the pardon. It has no value apart from that which the receiver gives it. George Wilson has refused to accept the pardon. We cannot conceive why he would do so, but he has. Therefore, George Wilson must die. Wilson was hanged. See, God's grace becomes a pardon from, from sin for only those who will receive it. It has no value to those that reject it. But for those who receive it, it means everything. Self-righteousness cost George Wilson his life. Self-righteousness is costing many their eternal lives. But God has pardoned us in Jesus. Some refuse, but many see the value in a second chance. Heavenly Father, as we close our time together today, thank, thank you for giving us that second chance in Jesus, letting us understand that when bad things happen, when atrocities happen, it should allow our minds to go to you, and it should get our attention. But your motive, Father, we'll never know. But we know one of your motives, and that is for us to allow anything that happens in our life draw us closer to you. To allow us to, to dig around the weeds of our lives. To allow you to do it for us. To allow you to, to continue strengthening us. Because you're the life source. 
Father, we, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that he is our second chance. If there's one in here today that's never taken that second chance, never taken that, that, that parchment pardon, they would receive it today. Yes, even though they didn't deserve it. And Lord, I imagine George Wilson didn't take it because he didn't think he deserved it. And that's the point. You pardon us when we deserved far worse. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ and what he gives us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.